Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. everybody, welcome to the podcast. Ethan Cross, PhD, is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. An award-winning professor in the University of Michigan's top-ranked psychology department and its Ross School of Business, he is the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. He has participated in policy discussion at the White House and has been interviewed about his work on CBS Evening News, Good Morning America, and NPR's Morning Edition. His pioneering research has been featured in the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, New England Journal of Medicine, and Science. All right, Dr. Ethan Cross, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Excellent. Me too. I really, really enjoyed your new book, Chatter, particularly from the lens of a clinical psychologist who spends so much of his time trying to address exactly the kinds of challenges with our inner voice that come up in Chatter. Uh, In that light, I'd like to divide our time today, if we can, between going over some of the theory around our inner voice, especially from a clinical lens, but then also the application of a handful of the strategies that are discussed in the book. How does that sound for a game plan? That sounds great. Let's do it. Awesome. Okay. So I guess first question, what is chatter as you define it in the book? Well, chatter is the negative manifestation of the inner voice. And so I think it's important to emphasize that what, first, let's break down. What, what do I mean when I use the phrase, the voice in our head? I'm talking about being able to use language silently. And language is a tool as far as I'm concerned. And we can use language to do a number of wonderful things. It, the, our inner voice, it's part of our working memory system, which is a basic feature of the human mind. We use it to keep information active. It's essential to our ability to navigate the world without working memory we wouldn't be able to do the most mundane tasks like remind ourselves what we need to get from the grocery store or, you know, what we have to do later on that day. But that's only one, that's only one context in which we use our inner voice. We do it for lots of other things like simulating and planning. So before I give a big presentation, I will rehearse in my head often when I'm driving or walking, what I'm going to say during that talk. I'll not just rehearse what I'm going to say, I'll then listen, I'll hear in my head what the really, really aggressive audience member is going to ask me, and then I'll simulate how I'm going to respond. Interestingly enough, my response in those cases is usually a lot more aggressive than how I would normally respond in person. But that's me using my inner voice to plan and prepare myself for the future. That's essential for me being successful. We use our inner voice to do other things too, like control ourselves, coach ourselves through a problem. If I'm putting together a complicated toy for my kids, I'm I'm coaching, all right, Ethan, put this screw here and then twist the the wrench this way. And we, of course, use our inner voice to, to storify our lives. Like we experience things that we have trouble explaining. We use language to weave a narrative that that gives us some understanding of that experience and that helps shape our sense of who we are. So I like to think of this inner voice as a Swiss army knife of the mind. It does lots of things for us. We don't want to stop talking to ourselves. We want to keep that inner voice in good, proper functioning form. But, and you've experienced this no doubt many times with your clients and many listeners have too, sometimes this tool can get us in trouble. Because when we experience negative things in our lives, many people reflexively try to understand why they're feeling the way they are. They try to work through their problems and they use language to help them do so. But rather than come up with solutions, they end up to use the very technical term spinning. They worry, they ruminate, they catastrophize, and which is what I call chatter. I use the term chatter to describe the experience of getting stuck in a negative thought loop. So you're trying to make sense, you're, you're trying to do something adaptive, work through a problem, make sense of it, feel better. 
but you get stuck every time you access the memory or the experience and you don't make progress. Chatter about the past, we call that rumination. Chatter about the future, that's worry. The common theme is that there's this perseveration. We keep on thinking about things over and over and over again. So that's the, the broad contours of this terrain. Uh, let me stop there because I feel like I, I've already spoken too much. So I'll throw it back to you. No, that's great. And I can't wait to drill down with you around rumination and worry in particular. One sort of bigger picture question for you first. At a very kind of metacognitive level, is there any sense of how attention is directed with respect to our inner voice? So for instance, how and why do we choose to focus on topic X, Y, or Z? Is there sort of a, I mean this by metaphor only, like a master controller in there that is directing our attention, our inner voice to focus on certain things? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And the answer is, is yes. So by, according to, to several different you know, models of human self-regulation of how we function, we tend to, uh, you know, we navigate the world on autopilot until autopilot stops working for us. Uh, autopilot stops working for us often when we experience things that we have trouble understanding. We experience events that don't fit our, our schemas, our worldviews. Um, when we're, for example, rejected by someone, when we're insulted, when we get really anxious, we stop and okay, how are we gonna deal with this kind of situation? And when we encounter those kinds of events that we have trouble understanding, explaining, that's when we mobilize our resources, our mental resources, our attention, including our inner voice, to weigh in on those problems. Ethan, why are rumination and worry so seductive, despite us knowing that rumination and worry ultimately predict negative outcomes in the context of depression and anxiety? It's something I'm always chatting about with clients. It's just such a curiosity that despite its self-defeating nature, we really seem to be drawn to rumination and worry. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a paradox, right? We're engaging in a behavior that ultimately isn't serving us well. And I think the one point to, to, to keep in mind is that think about how often we use our minds to solve problems. I mean, like, you know, unless someone else is solving the problem for us, solutions usually don't come up on their own. And so, it, we, it's, it, you know, there's a, it's, it's the go-to tool for dealing with any, any issue we face. And so um, when we encounter negative events, we reflexively resort to that tool, the mind and language often to work through the problem. And people are highly motivated to do so. So not, we should, we should say, right? Like not everyone when they experience negativity does try to work through it to feel better. Some people, uh, some people reflexively try to avoid their emotions. That's their go-to. They avoid thinking about it to get over the problem. We know that that's not effective um, and can, can backfire in, in really profound ways. But a lot of us, we do try to work through the experience. So it makes sense. It's logical that we would try to, try to engage with it, but then we get stuck. This, this tool we have for making sense of experience, the mind, like it jams up. And then what happens when it jams up and we're stuck experiencing chatter? Well, we often keep on trying to get it to work. So we're still motivated to work, so we try even further. And that still doesn't release this tool and get it to work more effectively. Now, the good news is that you know most of what I've spent my career studying and most of what my book is about chatter. It's hard, by the way, to refer to the book Chatter when you're talking about chatter in context, but um, the, the title is Chatter. So most of what I talk about in the book are, are tools that exist for getting unstuck once you fall down that rabbit hole. Lots of people stumble on tools that they can use to help themselves amidst their daily lives. They figure out ways of managing their chatter without really understanding how they work or why. Um, I think one of the, the opportunities that bringing the science to bear on this issue has for people is putting people in a position to be more deliberate about, hey, I don't have to wait to discover something that seems to work. Right, I can I can access. Here are a list of things I can do that are empirically supported, and now I can begin to think of what are the unique combinations of these tools that really work for me in these different situations. So I think that's where the science um, can be helpful. It can also, of course, be helpful in pointing out things that people think are useful, which science suggests actually aren't. 
there's a number of those that I want to ask you about for sure. One thing I wanted to get your take on, Ethan, is, you know, with respect to rumination, and again, I'm bringing it up because it's so prominent clinically and causes so many problems. What I've noticed anecdotally is that rumination tends to coalesce around, let's say, uncertainty or uncontrollability or where there's unknowns, right? Where there's sort of an emotionally inconvenient cul-de-sac where the person ends up where it's like, listen, nobody knows, or the the truth is they just weren't that into you, or, you know, there's something very emotionally inconvenient at the end of the line as far as, you know, cognitively working through it. And what the person does, they just will go back and redouble back through all the thinking and end up at the same spot and then refresh and repeat. Yeah. What do you think about that sort of way of, or that model of thinking about how rumination mechanistically might get activated? Well, I think, you know, uh, uncertainty and and a lack of control are, are ingredients that fuel rumination and worry as well. And, you know, it's interesting, we're living through a time now where the past year that I've described as the chatter event of the century, in part because, or largely because, we don't have control. We don't have a whole lot of control right now. And the future has been uncertain for a long time. And so, um, so I think, yeah, that, that, that can make it really difficult to come up with clear solutions about what, what, you know, we should do and how we should behave. And, um, you know, often you need to have the recognition that I can't control this. And so given that I can't control this and the future is uncertain, what can, what can I do? Um, interestingly enough, some of the tools that, that I, I talk about in the book, like certain distancing strategies, one of the things we know about distancing tools and, and, um, I'll just define it quickly now so that people know what we're talking about. Uh, when, when, we're, when we're stuck in rumination worry, we get really zoomed in super narrowly on the problem at hand. We're focusing on it in a tunnel vision manner, like what's bothering us and how we felt about it and so forth. And so uh, a lot of the tools that are useful for helping people manage these experiences involve helping them take a step back to focus on the broader perspective, the bigger picture. Hey, this is a terrible pandemic we're living through, but guess what? We've been through this before as a species and we've survived and we will survive now. Like that's a perspective broadener that helps us recognize the bigger picture, looks at alternative ways of making sense of this experience that can make us feel better. Um, There are lots of ways to broaden your perspective, lots of distancing tools that have been studied. And one common element, one common outcome that we see is that they promote what we call wisdom or wise reasoning. And the way we define wise reasoning is recognizing um, the limits of one's own knowledge. So recognizing, having a sense of intellectual humility. Hey, as smart as I am, I don't know it all. And there's always more to learn. And I say that in the abstract sense, I'm not referring to myself there. So uh, (laughs) trying to exercise humility. But it also involves recognizing that the world is constantly changing. The world is uncertain. And the idea is that, you know, being wise, knowing how to navigate thorny social dilemmas and issues, which is what wisdom is all about, being able to recognize, acknowledge, and accept the fact that the world is constantly in flux and changing, that's a, that's a, that's an advantage. That's a cognitive advantage, right? And that's what distancing helps people do. If you take that step back, you realize we don't have always have control over things. So that's a long-winded way of saying, I I agree, uncertainty and a lack of control are very much involved in rumination um, and perseverative cognition. And, you know, I would just maybe add one more bit to this basic mechanism part of the conversation, which is, I think chatter, and I use the term chatter because you know, we psychologists have so many different, we love coming up with, with like different labels to refer to different things. It's like rumination, worry, perseverative cognition, um, you know, and, and the list goes on. Chatter is trying, I'm trying to use that as an umbrella term to just capture this sense of getting stuck. Um, I think this is one of the big problems that we face as a species. And I'm not trying to be over dramatic there, by any means. I mean, I've reviewed this literature, I've studied for the past 20 years. When you look at what's at stake, here's what it is. It's our ability to think and perform well at work. When people are experiencing chatter, it drains, it consumes our attention, doesn't lead any attention, much attention left over 
to do our jobs, to focus on the reports or our presentations or what we need to do on the ball field. There was a recent report putting the price tag on anxiety and depression in the workplace, which we know chatter factors prominently into at over a trillion dollars. That is not a verbal typo, not a billion, not 500, but a trillion dollars. That's a huge amount of money, right? That's what chatter can do to us in terms of our performance and thinking. It also impacts our relationships. We know that chatter has been linked with creating social friction in our relationships because when we experience chatter, we often wanna talk about it with other people. And because the thought loops persist, we talk about it with other people and we keep on talking about it and keep on talking and keep, and you know, other people aren't our paid therapists. And so, you know, talking about these problems over and over can have the effect of creating strains on our social relationships and pushing others away. Um, and then finally, there's work showing that chatter can influence our health, right? We experience stress. Stress isn't bad in and of itself. When stress gets bad is when we experience stress and we don't stop experiencing it. We experience a chronic stress reaction. That exerts a wear and tear in our bodies that predicts things like cardiovascular disease and inflammation and certain kinds of cancer. And chatter is a main culprit in maintaining our stress responses because we experience negative events and we don't just allow them to fade into our past. We instead keep re-experiencing those events in our heads by virtue of thinking about them over and over again. So work, relationships, health. I think these are the areas of life that make life worth living and and chatter sinks them all. And so that's why um, I've really been taken with this topic and, and motivated to understand what we can do to help people who are suffering from it. Those are such great points. And in the book, I think you made a wonderful point about the potential for co-rumination in the context of therapy, right? Where someone wants to come in, they want to sort of uh, chat about something repeatedly over and over again. And, you know, a therapist who's maybe tired or unmotivated or maybe unskilled might just sit there and just validate and validate and validate. And I love the way that you framed up. People have emotional needs. They need validation, right? They need to be, their their pain needs to be uh, witnessed by another human being. But we also have cognitive needs, right? That need for perspective and for zooming out and getting that distance. So I think you really made such a wonderful point in the book around that. I uh, thank you for that. You know, that, that was the hardest chapter to write by far in the book. Um, in part because this, the idea that people should vent and that venting alone is a route to working through chatter, this is such an incredibly popular, sticky idea. It's been with us from, you know, Aristotle popularized it or mentioned it. Freud then, you know, helped popularize it. And it's just stuck with us. And uh, it, it's remarkable to me because when you look at the data, the data clearly show that venting alone doesn't help people work through their chatter. It, it, it certainly can help create friendship bonds because if I find someone who's willing to chat with me about my problems and is willing to listen, that's great. I know they care about me, that's good. But if we don't address the cognitive needs as well, you're just stuck with the emotions over and over again. And so, um, so being, you know, finding the, a way to emphasize that I'm by no means, and to be clear into the mic, by no means and my am I advocating not talking about emotions it's important to access and express your emotions but that's not the only thing we need to do right we also have to try to broaden our perspective reframe um, distance and so forth and um, and you know I think the take home for for listeners here who aren't in therapy and 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 quite frankly don't need to be is when you think about, who you want to talk to about your problems. Think about like, are the people that you speak with, are they skilled at not only listening, but also helping you broaden your perspective? Like there's some people in my life who I love a lot and love me as well. I'm, I'm sure of it. It's like our DNA determines it because we're related. <laughs> um, I don't talk to them about my chatter because they just, you know, they get me to vent. It's a co-rumination session. And I, I hang up the phone and I'm so pissed off. I have to go and take a walk just to diffuse. Um, so instead, like there are very, very like few people. There are like three people in my personal life and four in my professional life that I go to with my chatter. There's like my chatter board of advisors. And I value that board of advisors greatly because they really do help me um, 
manage blips of chatter when they experience when I experience them. I love that. And that's such an important point for clients who are in therapy is that, you know, therapy is supposed to be a disruptive process in some way. I think a lot, there's a lot of kind of cultural headwinds around what therapy is that you go in, you kind of spill your guts, the therapist nods, makes a few notes and that's it. But really you do want someone there who, who's in there advocating for another perspective. That's not the one that's inside of you, right? It's, it's, it's to expand your your mind. And to, I guess, to take it in sort of the other direction from venting in CBT, we very much strongly discourage like glib, positive self-talk, right? Affirmations, things like that. It doesn't work. The evidence is very clear. It actually makes people feel worse in some cases because it deepens the distance between the distress that they have and, and, and the internal messaging that they're trying to get up and running. Ethan, what's your take on, on positive self-talk? Uh, and is there maybe even, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Is there, is there a balance there around uh, yeah. optimism versus uh, being uh, you know overly negative, let's say? Um, well, I would add a third element to that optimism, um, overly negative and overly positive. Um, you know, I think, there, I, you know, was, I think there is a lot of data showing that optimism can be quite useful for me, from a mental health point of view. Um, having said that, uh, I think my sense of what, what you're describing is, is falls into the domain of this toxic positivity movement where the idea is let's just rid ourselves of negative thoughts and, you know, only give ourselves positive thoughts. And I vehemently disagree with that perspective. Um, you know, uh, when people are, for example, in our studies, we're, we're looking at how to shift people's self-talk, for example, through, through, let's say a distancing technique where we tell people, give yourself advice. Like you'd give yourself like a friend of advice. What would you say to a friend and, you know, use your name to do it because we find that could be very helpful. Um, we call that distant self-talk. When we look at the content of what people are thinking, it's definitely challenge-oriented and coach-like. But if you look at the actual words they use, it's not, all right, honey, it's going to be just fine. You're great. You know, it, um, sometimes it's stern, right? The messages that are we find out. It's like, like, you know, don't be super stressed. You can manage this. You've done it before. You're going to get by this, this, you know, it's in all, in our studies and in other people's studies too, when we, when we turn the volume down on the chatter, we're not transforming it into this positive lullaby to the self. We are still, people are still feeling negative when they're working through a problematic experience. They're just able to do so more objectively, right? They're like, sometimes you do things like you put your, I put my foot in my mouth uh, during a meeting the other day. Right, and I was I was ruminating a bit about it. I'm not going to tell you what I said because I don't want to repeat the, the 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 pain, but it was painful to me. And I did use some of the tools I talk about in the book. I used distant self talk. I all right, Ethan, how can you fix this situation? I used temporal distancing. I thought, all right, how are you going to feel about this a week from now rather than right now? Those took the edge off the experience, and they helped me look at the bigger picture. I still feel negative when I think about what happened though, to me, to a certain degree, it's just no longer the source of rumination. So, um, so I, I certainly agree with you. Uh, the antidote to chatter is not just getting people to pretend that everything is okay and life is perfect and will be, because it often isn't. We want people to be realistic and we want people to engage with the challenges they're facing, but we want to enable people to do so without getting stuck. And, and that's what the book is about. And I think that's what the research, research speaks to is how can you get people to be unstuck? So I think that's a compatible perspective, but, but Pete, I'd love to hear what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, I think this is a real problem. Like if I go on my LinkedIn feed, which I don't go on almost ever. But when I do, it's littered with all these affirmations yeah. uh, that to me fly in the face of actual true resilience. And I think what I see with clients is, or what I just see with life, I guess, in general, is that it's about not resisting our internal experience, acknowledging that which is difficult. Then you can accurately map the, the coping that's required to deal with it. If you're just sitting there in the middle of a field, covering your ears and your eyes and just pretending like everything's okay, it's impossible to identify the coping that needs to be uh, actioned. So, and, and just to that point I was saying before, I think a lot of us will only descend down to a level of, of emotional convenience that we can tolerate with respect to mapping a situation. 
And so in therapy, what I'm trying to get clients to do is to map it all the way down to the bottom of what's actually going on. Then it becomes self-evident what to do. Yeah. Um, I I, I want to make two points. Uh, Some of them will be familiar to your listeners. Some may not. Um, You know, the first point is I've been talking about this stuff nonstop for a couple of months now, chatter. And, and also while researching the book, you know, one of the messages people often expressed to me was tell me how to silence my inner voice, right? Like tell me how to just end negative self-talk and my response to them. And I actually, I, I brought in a story into the book to address this point head on. I tell the story of a woman who had a stroke that targeted the stroke, um, damaged some of her language centers in the brain, making it impossible to, t- to, to talk temporarily to other people as well as herself. And at first she described the experience as, um, as euphoric because the, the chatter went away. But then she described it as very disruptive because she could no longer make meaning of her negative experience. She couldn't use the voice in her head to do all the remarkable things that it does. And another reason why it's disruptive is because I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy that they could never experience negative emotions. Negative emotions are functional. We we have evolved the capacity to experience negativity for a reason. It is an elegant response that, that helps us, right? So when I experience a small pang of anxiety, when I recognize I've got a high stakes event coming up, that's good and motivates me to stop watching Netflix and prepare, right? When I experience anger after being transgressed, that's good. It motivates me to deal with a potential threat in an adaptive way. So negative emotions and with negative emotions, some negative self-talk, that's not what we want to avoid. What we want to avoid is when those negative emotions cease being adaptive and start becoming maladaptive. And that's when they morph into chatter. So uh, so I think it's about preventing the chatter, not the negativity per se. Absolutely agree. Yeah, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And again, I've had many folks on the podcast with an evolutionary bent to their mode of study or mode of practice. And this idea comes up over and over again, right? Like these um, emotions are tools and it's not the tool per se. That's the problem is how it's utilized and, and maybe, you know, in a time limited fashion in the right context, all those kind of things. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I could not agree more. And just to, just to really punctuate it, if you'll give me 60 seconds, um, one of the most powerful illustrations of the value of negativity um, comes from looking at individuals who, by virtue of a, of a genetic polymorphism, a little unfortunate blip of nature, mutation, they are born incapable of experiencing physical pain. What happens to these people is they end up dying at young ages. They die because they don't know when they have their, when their hand like accidentally crosses a burning stove, they don't know to pull, pull their hand away. They don't know when to stop scratching a mosquito bite, right? Because they don't get the pain response. And as a result, they, their, their, their bites get infected. And so they die from these wounds because they don't have the pain system activating to help them navigate the world. Anxiety, depression, anger, embarrassment, you plug in your favorite negative emotion. They serve a function. We don't want to get rid of them. We want to be able to manage them. Ethan, before I migrate over to a discussion of some of the strategies, I have one last sort of clinical question for you. I do a lot of work with clients with OCD who have intrusive thoughts. And the very first thing that we teach them is, you know, it is completely self-defeating to try and suppress these thoughts. Why does thought suppression have such a paradoxical outcome associated with it? Well, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's, it's so much fun to talk to you about these things. I haven't, I haven't done many interviews with, with, with folks in the, in the clinical domain yet. And so it's really fun to get into these issues. So thought suppression often backfires. So mechanistically, why does that often happen? Because um, once you give a person the goal of suppressing a thought, you've activated this goal. So now they are often scanning their thoughts to see if they are fulfilling their goal of suppressing the thought. And once they search for the thought, it activates the thought. So it, there's this paradoxical um, loop that occurs. All right, we have the goal of not thinking about it. We got to check up to see how effective we're being over time. But every time we check to see if we're effective, the thought pops up. So that's why it's an, one of the reasons why it's incredibly hard to actually suppress a thought. Um, the other thing that the other distinction I find useful in, in thinking about thought suppression and, and how that relates to emotion regulation is 
it's re- well, well, actually, let me back up. Let me tell you a story that, that came out of the classroom when I, I teach a class at Michigan on the science of self-control, not necessarily about clinical issues specifically, but just thought, um, self-control more generally. Um, some students think that successful self-control involves never even experiencing a dark or tempting thought in the first place, right? And so if the thought crosses your mind, that I wanna eat the cookie after 8 p.m. I've already failed at self-control. Other students have a different perspective. They don't care about what thoughts are streaming through your head. It's, okay, have you actually eaten the cookie? Have you taken the drug? My response to students in the former group, the ones who are, are, are thinking about you know, failures if you just experience a thought, is you're setting a really high bar for being successful at self-control in your life. Because as far as I know, um, I have not come across any compelling work showing that we can actually control the thoughts that pop up in our head. We don't have control over the thoughts that appear. What we do have control over is how we relate to those thoughts, how we elaborate on them, how we act on them, whether we do or don't. And so I I, I wanted to tell this story to, to listeners because I think just drawing this distinction between whether a thought pops up in your head, whether you have control over that versus what you do with it once it's there, I think that can be helpful for people when trying to think about whether they're being effective in their lives in managing themselves well. I think that is absolutely critical. And there's a study or there's a group of studies that I'll often cite to clients with OCD saying that when you survey people, their inner monologue or the the, the thoughts that they have are quantitatively and qualitatively no different than what people with OCD report. They just put a different label on it. So someone with OCD is walking down the street and they see a bus shelter and they're like, oh man, I could go in there and punch everyone in the face right now. And they're like, oh my God, I'm the terrible person. Another person not affected by OCD has that exact same thought and says, oh geez, that was kind of weird. And then, and they just keep going. Yeah. So it's the label that we put on these thoughts that gives them the meaning. So I love what you're saying, right? Like we don't have control whether they come up, but it's the meaning that we attach to them that ultimately determines their functional significance in day-to-day life. Yeah. I mean, Pete, if you, if you gave me the opportunity to attach a, a microphone to my mind and share with the world what thoughts stream through my head, I'd be in big trouble. I mean, and, and <laughs> me, I, I would I'd venture, I'd venture to say most people would. I would hate, I would hate. I mean, you know, we experience all sorts of thoughts and to start getting into the te- why, you know, why are these versus those thoughts popping up? Like we don't know. And we, we do know that you can't control it. And so, um, so, so that's why I think it's just, it's, it's a, it's in some ways a very difficult enterprise if that's where you're focusing um, your attention. It's interesting. I will say that um, one of the things that social media does, of course, is exactly what I would hate to have happened to me, you know, the prompt on, on Facebook is what's on your mind, share the thoughts streaming through your head. And um, social media is not good or bad. As I talk about in the book, it can be both helpful and harmful, but, but there's no question. And we've seen instances of people getting into real trouble by just sharing an unfiltered stream of thoughts on Twitter um, or other platforms. And, and that can uh, blow up in their face or has. Yeah, it's almost like a mind rage. And, I, and, and what I mean by that is like an analogous to road rage, right? Like people engage in behavior that they never would because of the distance between, you know, you're in your car there and there. So you freak yeah. out in, in a way that you never would person to person. I think hiding behind a screen, people just don't have a sense of the weight of what they're saying. It's just words into a keyboard and bloop, off it goes. So, well, and, it, and it's, 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 I think, it, you know, it's interesting how all the pieces with social media kind of and human psychology just kind of fit together because social media provides us with the platform to do this, to just express. But what we also know is that with the, with, with few exceptions, um, people are strongly motivated to share their feelings with other people. So you've got people who tend to be like all of us want to share or many of us. And before social media, sharing wasn't so easy. Like you'd have to find someone to talk to, right? Even if you call them, they can't, they're not always there. They can't pick up the phone or maybe you're at work. You know, you want to talk to someone in person, they're busy. So you got to find someone that takes time and time usually takes the edge off emotions, normatively speaking, or emotions fade with time. But social media, it's like, 
what the bleep, 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 I just, this happened? Like, okay, here's my, you know, blah, 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 blah. I, I can do it. And, and, and that's been transformational, I think, for, for society. Yeah, I think one of the real dangers with social media is the inefficiency or the low resolution uh, features of the feedback loop, right? So say you and I are talking, I'm asking you something or making a point, I see a subtle grimace on your end, leading me to, you know, believe perhaps I'm going in the wrong direction, I might kind of course correct a little bit. Uh, I also know you, you know, to some level, right? I know what your credentials are, I, I know what your field of study is. So, you know, when, when we're putting things onto the internet, we don't know who the people are who are giving us the feedback. The feedback often will come like hours later from when we've delivered it. So the, the mechanism is very clumsy and I don't think a great fit for the, you know, feedback is such, life is too complicated for any one brain to constitute, right? Yeah. So we rely on this hive mind to sort of put it all together through feedback and sharing. So social media to me has great promise, but the implementation is, I, I think, fails us in, in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, we're going to look back at at Facebook, Twitter, and these other platforms and think, my God, were these things archaic in how they functioned. Um, you know, think about the kind of feedback we're now giving, like a smiley face versus a frown, and there are other emoticons. And like, that's a step in the right direction, right? We're getting more, but it's it's, I mean, compared to what you and I are doing right now, it's incredibly impoverished. And so you can imagine, you know, with virtual reality and more advanced kinds of um, technology, much more immersive technologies that are likely going to continue to transform how our, our species work. So, um, so it's an incredibly interesting space. No, it, it sure is. Okay, so your, your book is jam-packed full of really interesting strategies. And I think both the clinicians and the consumers and the audience will want to hear about a few of them at least. You have, I think, four categories in the book, sort of implement on your own, uh, how to provide support, how to receive support, and maybe looking at environmental factors. So um, I had a couple in mind that, that came up for me, but certainly if there's ones that you feel are, you know, kind of the most important to discuss, that would be great. From an implementation on your own perspective for, for managing chatter, you know, Ethan, what's your go-to around that? And again, there's, there's so many described in the book, but is there one that stands out for you? There, there, are, there are probably two that stand out for me, but before I tell you what they are, uh, I want to mention that I'm a proponent of the idea that there are no single, um, magic pills, silver bullets. There's no one tool that works for all people in all situations. Um, and I think that's a really important point to, to emphasize because there are other approaches that advocate single single solutions. And I, haven't, I, I just haven't seen any compelling data suggesting that that is the case. I think um, where we are now as a science is we've identified lots and lots of different tools. There, a lot of them are in the book. Um, and, and, and we've shown that they can be effective. What we don't yet know are, are how these different tools combine and how they combine for different people in different situations. That's the challenge that science is now confronting. It's really exciting. And I think it's the challenge that readers of this book and listeners of this podcast face too, to do some self-experimentation um, to figure out, okay, well, it's these three or four things or seven or eight that really work for me. These others, not so much. So with that caveat, the the tools that I use, um, the things that I could do on my own that I often find effective, I do use distant self-talk quite a bit. Um, um, we know that it's much easier for people to advise others than to take our own advice. Um, and many people have had the experience of a friend coming to them with a problem that they're ruminating about. Their friend can't get at, get unstuck, but it's really clear to you as someone who's not in the situation, what they should do. Uh, I find it fascinating that we have stumbled on a tool that a linguistic tool that helps us relate to ourselves like we were relating to another person. And it involves using your name and other non-first person pronouns to talk yourself through a problem. All right, Ethan, how are you gonna deal with this situation? That, that provides us with distance that can be really helpful. So I use that. I'll often use temporal distancing as well. So I will think about when I'm, when I'm really, oh my God, chatter, chatter, chatter. How am I gonna feel about this a week from now or a month from now? It's a tiny little shift, but it's a shift that just reminds me, you know what? Just hold fast a little bit, it will get better. Cause guess what, Ethan? It always does, it always has. Now. I'm not someone who suffers from clinical forms of anxiety and depression. So 
there is a caveat here that with more chronic kinds of stressors, that particular tool might be less effective. But for acute stressors, things that tend to have a clear beginning, middle, and end, what temporal distancing does for me is it is it shortens the duration of these negative events. So I use those tools. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, chatter advisors. I, I leverage my chatter advisors too. Um, I have a goat. I've got that Rolodex. I, I don't. Do people even know what a Rolodex is anymore? Maybe not. <laughs> probably if you're I, over thir- what, if you're over thirty five, you probably still know what a Rolodex is. I would guess. <laughs> so for the younger folks on the call, my God, I feel ancient right now. Yeah, um, <laughs> oh, geez, Rolodex was just a little. Uh, you'd write your contacts on them, and you could roll it so you could quickly scan through it. It was a neat contraption. Now replaced by the iPhone. In any case, I will. Um, I'll tap into my chatter board, so to speak, and I'll leverage their assistance and they leverage mine back. It's a reciprocal relationship. It's not a co-rumination kind of vent session that we engage in. It's very constructive and we are tools for one another and we recognize that. And uh, so I'll avail myself of that. Um, so that's distant self-talk, temporal distancing, other people, chatter board, uh, and then I'll also, I'll, I'll, I will use some of the environmental tools, but I'll, let me pause there because I don't know if you want to get into those in more detail before I start talking about them, though I, I'm happy to if you want. No, I think those are great descriptions. Uh, there's, there's a couple I wanted to ask you about. Uh, one was sort of, again, the right balance with social media, and we had sort of touched on it a little, little bit, you know, Again, in, I agree. In 15, 20 years, we're going to look back and say, man, this is like the cigarettes of the uh, of our era kind of thing, right? We'll have the same sort of level of, uh, of disdain for, for how this played out. That being said, in 2021, how would you advise someone to orient to social media from the lens of chatter? Okay. So I think, so I've been studying social media and its impact on well-being more or less since social media came on the scene and and my views on it have evolved, uh, have evolved. Um, you know, initially our early work suggested that it across the board predicted declines in well-being. You know, it, it, it instigated experiences of, of rumination and chatter and, and distress. Um, where I am now based on the science that has emerged both from our lab and lots and lots of others is that social media is not good or bad how it impacts us and and how it affects whether we experience chatter depends on how we use it. To draw an analogy, I think of social media as a new environment and environments aren't good or bad. Think of the environment we spend most of our time in or that some people spend most of our time in, the offline world. There are healthy and harmful ways of navigating this world. Right. If I go to the wrong neighborhoods and speak to the wrong people, I can get in trouble. If I go to other neighborhoods and speak to other people and have other kinds of experiences, that can really benefit me. We're taught from a very young age how to navigate the offline world to our betterment. Right. Our parents, our caretakers, our teachers, our friends, culture socializes us. It teaches us how to navigate the world. We haven't really had a culture to socialize us into how to navigating social media because it's so new and constantly changing. Social media isn't even just one thing. There are all these different platforms that have different features. Nonetheless, what we now know, 15 or however many plus years since social media really became dominant is we do have some sense of what are the healthy versus unhealthy ways of navigating that space. Um, It's an ever evolving knowledge base, but, but in terms of take homes, Um, There is evidence suggesting that passively consuming information on social media, so just scrolling through your news feeds and taking in the glorified accomplishments of others, um, that can lead some people to feel bad, to feel envy and to ruminate about their experiences because you're seeing all the wonderful things happening to other people. And then you're reminded of the lack of continuous wonderful things happening to you. Uh, We also know that when you're experiencing frustration, like social media provides us with a, it's very easy to share that frustration in a unfiltered way that can have serious negative effects, both on the share, because you sometimes violate social norms by talking too emotionally online, but also for the recipient of your frustration, things like the phenomena like cyberbullying and trolling, these are significant negative phenomena. These are phenomena that are negatively impacting people in really consequential ways. 
Um, and there are large literatures now that speak to the toxic effects that cyberbullying and trolling can have on others. So we want to avoid those ways of navigating the space. How can we use social media to our benefit? Well, it can be really great for uh, providing people with opportunities to provide support to others, both emotional, but also cognitive support and getting support. Like we have huge networks of people that social media puts us in touch with. And so we can use that those networks strategically to get resources, to get aid. Um, uh, and so when it comes to well-being, I think those are a couple of blueprints that now exist for steering us. Yeah, I love the nuance in that take. And I, I love the way that you framed up uh, social media is just a new environment, right? It's like, hey, if, we're, if we have good skills for living in a jungle environment, it's simply a matter of my, and we're migrating over to a desert environment. It's not better or worse. It's just different. We just have to figure out the rules of the game and how to make it work for us ultimately, which is sort of the human niche as far as evolution goes. We're just so flexible. Uh, I hope we're up to the task because it does seem to present a number of huge challenges to us. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult task in, in part because the environments that we're navigating with are constantly changing. Like the physical world is, is slow to change, right? Like climate change is hastening the effects it has on us. But imagine climate change occurred overnight and every day, like significant climate change, like, or, or you know, volcanoes that, that change the way our, our, our physical terrain is constructed were happening whenever a programmer wanted. That is social media, right? Because you just do a little shift of the algorithm and the entire parameters of the universe, the environment can change. And then you have different social media applications that have different rules. Like Instagram, it's okay to post certain things and, and act in certain ways that you probably wouldn't do on Twitter and LinkedIn is even different. And so you have to, so it's, you need like a, a, a guidebook for each of these platforms. And, and we're just beginning to develop that now. Absolutely. Uh, Ethan, before we run out of time, I'd love to ask you about the restorative capacity of green spaces and being in natural spaces, which is pretty much the exact opposite of social media. What's yeah. the mechanism there? I found that so fascinating to read about in the, uh, in the book. Well, so there's a lot of data showing that green spaces can have beneficial effects when it comes to chatter um, and, and people's well-being more generally. And there are at least two mechanisms that we know of at this point with some data behind them that explain how they work. Um, one thing they do is they help restore our limited attention. So we talked earlier about how when you're experiencing chatter, it can just consume you. That's all you're focusing on. And it really drains you of these resources we have that to focus um, in, a, in a very intent way on things. Uh, when you're in a, a green space that in which you feel safe and secure, and I always feel the need to give that little caveat because where I grew up in Brooklyn, green spaces were synonymous with getting mugged. You didn't really go into those. But if you find like a park that's friendly where you can let your guard down, you're surrounded by, by these interesting things, stimuli all around you, wonderful trees and shrubs and flowers. And what happens is those, those, those green spaces, they capture our attention, but, but in a very gentle way. So our, t our attention tends to drift. I'm looking right now at the, at the pine tree in my front yard, like just, hmm, that's, it's, it's interesting. And, and we're not focusing really hard, but we are focusing on it. And when, 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 when our attention is captured in that very, what we call soft way, called a soft fascination, that allows us to restore our attentional reserves. It's like putting a computer on sleep mode, right? It's there, it's waiting to be used, but, but we're not actively taxing the attentional machinery. And so by the end of that exposure, we're left with more, more resources to deal with the challenges we face. So that's one thing it does. The other way that nature can help people is by promoting the, the emotional experience of awe. So awe is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast that we have trouble explaining. Um, and nature provides that for a lot of people like, oh my God, how did these trees live here for hundreds of years? Or this flower is so beautiful. Like I can't explain the beauty of this rose. Um, people have different awe triggers. Um, you know, I, I had one just two days ago and I was reading the New York Times and, and, and I saw the discovery of a new form of energy that was completely unknown to us up until a few days ago. And that could radically transform our conception of the universe. Like, 
my God, so what does this mean? You know, is, is time travel and our infinity stones a la Avengers now going to become, you know, part of reality? Like, I can't explain it. Like, I'm filled with awe. Nature's filled with lots of awe-inspiring scenery. And what we know is when people experience awe, that's like the ultimate perspective broadener, right? And what it leads to is what we call shrinking of the self. We and our concerns feel smaller, when we're contemplating trees that have been here for hundreds of years or the vastness of the universe and so forth. And so attention and awe, those are two ways green spaces can help us when it comes to chatter. And in most places, those green spaces are freely available. There are no real side effects. If anything, the side effects are better cardiovascular health, you know, from getting outside. So I highly endorse it. Ethan, this conversation has been so much fun. Uh, you, you've made a number of really, really important points today. Uh, in addition to what you've said already, are, is there anything that you want to leave the audience with before we sign off? Um, my, my parting thoughts are, if you're experiencing chatter uh, at times, congratulations, you're a human. So, um, so really, I think we don't talk about it enough, and it's not something to be ashamed of or upset about. And the good news is that if you're motivated to manage it, there are lots of science-based tools that exist uh, that can help you do so. And uh, I encourage you to check them out. Right on. Ethan, if people want to find out more about you or learn more about the work that you've done or, and or doing, where can they go? Uh, you can go to my website, www.ethancrosskross.com. And you can find info about me, my the book, my lab. Um, you could take a quiz to see how well you know your inner voice. Um, that's fun. Um, and get in touch if you have any questions. Right on. Well, the book is Chatter. I highly, highly recommend it. Ethan, as, as I was saying to you a little bit uh, before we got actually recording, I think the book strikes such a great balance of being both sophisticated but as well as accessible. I think it will be a great read for uh, clinicians and consumers alike. So thank you so much for putting that out into the world. It's great. Thanks for having me. Really, it was a true delight to chat with you, Pete. So I, I, I really hope we get a chance to do it again. Likewise, that would be great. Take good care. Thanks so much. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.